I would like for us to today turn our attention to what God would have us do when the enemy strikes, when the enemy strikes. No, I didn't say if the enemy strikes. I said when the enemy strikes. You have an enemy, and I need to identify your enemy for you. Are you ready? Um, pull out your mirror. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, so here's your enemy. Your enemy is, number one, the flesh. Number two, the world. And number three, the demonic. There is a demonic realm, but I would say, in my estimation, my humble opinion is that if you can, if you can get beyond the enemy of the flesh, you have basically um, an open road ahead of you. If you can get beyond the enemy of the world, um, life will be good. But what we oftentimes do is we look at the demonic and we and we assess the demonic to be our greatest enemy. But really, the flesh, which is something you cannot be delivered from until you breathe your last, you will always be tempted by the flesh and an unrenewed mind. So, we have to identify that oftentimes the troubles we have in life was caused because of our enemy self, the flesh. We can't put self down. We can't deny self. We can't discipline the flesh. And therefore, because we have unrenewed minds, we create for ourselves nests of thorns. We live in this thorny nest and we wonder why. But then there's also, of course, the world that's constantly coming at us. And then thirdly, there is the demonic. Now, the demonic oftentimes, most of the times, does not come with a pitchfork and horns, right? That's not how you identify Satan or the demonic. As a matter of fact, the demonic always comes as an angel of light. How many of you notice that every God-forsaken, abominable ideology in our culture is always in order to help somebody? Have you noticed? It's always for the greater good. This, the enemy will always come as an angel of light. And so we have to identify our enemies and we have to know what the Bible says as to what to do when the enemy strikes. It's very clear, as Hans has read 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 and 5, that it's our job to pull down and to destroy those strongholds and we're going to talk about what those strongholds are. But let us turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And I'm going to move pretty fast because we have a lot to cover here. But I believe that it will be extremely helpful when you see how God has called you to respond in the face of an attack or in the face of an enemy and as you walk through this world, which is not a safe place, by the way. Not a safe place. There's a major onslaught against children today. It's not a safe place. Do you know that in Chicago alone in the last year, there were 600 cases of child abuse, molestation, 
and sexual abuse between teachers and children just in Chicago alone in one year. 600. Now those are the ones you know of because very often that's not ever brought up, right? Now when you look at the world from childhood up, it's a dangerous place. And how ought we to walk through this world untainted? How do we walk through this world like Shadrach, Mishkan, and Abednego walked through the fire and didn't smell like even smoke? Well, here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, God gives us, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, means as to means on how to get there. It says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Here God requires you to rely and depend on His mighty power, not your own. It says, verse 10, put on the full armor of God. This implies that it's possible to put on only some of it and not all of it. He says, no, 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 put on the full armor, all of it, every part of it. Put it on. And again, it says that it's God's armor, not yours. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Oh, the devil has schemes. The word schemes there, directly translated, would be strategies. Satan has a strategy to destroy you. Satan is very opposite to God, completely. God is a merciful God. Satan has no mercy. God is a gracious God. Satan has zero grace. If he could, he would have killed Job the first moment he left God's presence. He would have absolutely killed him. But God said, no, that one thing you will not do. So God gave him freedom on a leash. That far, no further. And if Satan wasn't on a leash, guess what? You would no longer be. He is frantically attempting to destroy the image of God every time he sees it. So he has a strategy in your life. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now I'd like you to imagine the person you dislike the most in this world. Think of that person. Who's the person that has brought you most harm? Think of them. The one who has offended you the greatest. That's, your struggle is not against that person. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But we do have a struggle, and it's against rulers, against the authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13, therefore, put on, because, because the world's a dangerous place, folks, because of that, put on the full armor of God. Again, it is God's armor, and don't just put on part of it, put all of it, put on all of it. Why? So that when, not if, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. How? With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, in place, in place. 
and with your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and then the sword of the Spirit, which is the very word of God. So let's just put it in a nutshell. What does your armor look like? This armor that God has given you, His armor that you are now carrying. Remember how David, who is the lesser Christ, Jesus is the greater David. David is a type and a shadow, a picture and a portrait of Jesus to come. The one who was going to save you from, the one that was going to overcome you, the Goliath. And your Goliath is not your mother-in-law. Your Goliath <laughs> is sin. Mm-hmm. That very thing you cannot stop doing. Somebody says, oh, we have free will. We have free will. Let me ask you. Can you choose freely to walk out here today and go and sin more than you would have sinned naturally? Could you choose more sin if you wanted? Of course you can. You can choose to sin right now. So you are free. You have a free will. Let me ask you this. Can you choose to not sin? For the rest of your life. Why, don't, why can't you? <laughs> you are free to choose sin, but you are not free to not choose sin. Do you follow what I'm saying? I've had a family member in prison. I remember sitting there talking to him and I said, you know what, we're both free. I'm just a lot more free than you. <laughs> He's free to choose which books, books to read that day. I'm free to do whatever I want. So yes, we are free. But we are not completely free, are we? So here is, in a nutshell, God's armor that He's given us to wear, just like David couldn't wear Saul's armor. Saul wanted to give David his armor to go and fight Goliath. Tried it on, it was too big, didn't fit. In the same way, we, however, God gives us armor that does work for us. He's armor that does fit our situation. And the armor is the belt, which represents what? Truth. A breastplate, which represents what? Righteousness. Shoes of the gospel that represents the readiness of the gospel, the ready word to speak. The shield which represents your faith in Christ, the helmet of salvation representing the protection of the mind and the sword of the Spirit, which is basically representing the truth that we find only in the Word of God. His Word is truth. McLaren Exposition says this, quote, Looking back on our own evil days, we must all be aware that our defeats have mainly come from two errors, the one being that fighting in our own strength and the other being that leaving the unused, leaving the, the armor of God unused. So you're going to fail in one, one of two areas in life. You're going to fail when you attempt to go at, at it yourself. Remember, you cannot choose to not sin. You are going to fail if, there, if, if, if it's all up to you. But by the grace of God, He empowers you to be sanctified. Amen? Through the means of repentance. So... That's the one way we're going to fail. The second way we're going to fail is by saying, ah, that, 
Here's another message on the armor of God. It's a nice story for children because they see a Roman soldier with all this military gear. So, but yeah, you know, uh, I'm just, I'm just going to hope for the best. Those are the two ways people fail, relying upon themselves or negating or neglecting the armor of God. You see, Alistair Begg says there are two ditches on either side of this issue of spiritual warfare. Number one, we can look at spiritual warfare by getting consumed by it, where what we do is we overemphasize our focus on Satan. Now, I, I, at one stage in my life, I grew up like this, where Satan was behind every bush. It's like the pastor says, hey, you, you, went, and, you went and got drunk again on sun, Saturday night. You can't come to church on Sunday. He says, I was standing there resisting, resisting, and then Satan pushed me in. <laughs> it's like everything is Satan's fault. Everything is Satan's fault. Satan destroyed my marriage. Satan... So what we can do is we can overemphasize our focus on the devil and get consumed with Satan and what he's doing. Live in fear. Or what we can do is we can pretend there is no such thing as a devil and therefore no need for spiritual warfare. Just don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. So today what I want us to do is consider God's will for you and I when the enemy strikes. And in so doing, we would need to take a closer look at what the different pieces of God's armor is and how we practically and effectively employ them. So first, let's look at the belt of truth. The belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now remember this belt of truth is part of God's armor, not Satan's armor. Why am I saying that? Because it is not the truth according to Satan's accusations of you, because they are true, aren't they? Satan so goes like, oh, he lied again. Well, I did. Well, I guess I'm a liar. That's Satan's truth or Satan's accusation about what you really did. But that's not the belt of truth. Why not? Because it's not Satan's, it's not Satan's weapons. It's God's armor. Well, what is God's armor? It's His truth about you. And what is His truth about you is that you are forgiven in Christ Jesus. His truth is that your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. His truth about you is that you've been blood washed by the Lamb of God. His truth about you is that you are now righteous as He is righteous. It is God's belt of truth on you. The reason for this is because God's truth is your starting point. It is by His truth that we are saved. He says, I am the way, the truth, and it's by Him that we are saved. It's by His truth that we are set free. You will know the truth, and it will set you free. Let me just tell you, if you knew every single detailed truth about China's balloon in the sky, it didn't save you, did it? It couldn't. It is not truth in that sense. It is God's truth about you that saves you. It is God's truth about you that delivers you. That's why it says that uh, you will know the truth, God's truth about you, and that truth will set you free from sin. 
condemnation, torment. So the interesting thing about this belt is that most of the armor relies on this belt. So imagine it, you have, they have this belt, the Roman soldiers, but everything else that they have, the holder that the sword rests in and the other fighting items, they were all lodged in and held up by this belt. You couldn't have a sword of, sword of the Spirit if you didn't first have a belt of truth because you wouldn't know how, how true that sword really is, <laughs> how real it, real it really is. So the belt of truth is the actual thing that holds, that holds the breastplate in place. It's all connected to this belt. It is His truth that protects us from all false doctrine. From the enemy's lies. It's His truth that protects us from being deceived. Imagine if you were deceived during times of war. If you're in the middle of a war and you're deceived, you have no chance. <coughs> Who knows what we would have believed? Maybe we would have believed that God's armor was not enough. Maybe we would have believed that God's armor was not necessary. Worse yet, maybe we would have believed God was our enemy and Satan was in fact our ally. He's an angel of light. But when the enemy strikes, we have to immediately run for truth. So here's a question that I put together that you can ask yourself to see if you are in fact wearing this belt of truth. Are you ready? Here's your question. Am I a diligent student of Scripture? Am I a diligent student of Scripture who understands God's Word in context? No use using the Word of God out of context like Satan does. That doesn't set you free. That doesn't save anyone. But am I a student of the Word of God in context? That's why in our Bible school, and we'll talk more about it later in today's service, but in our Bible school, we have a whole entire module. It's about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the theological word used for having the... the um, um, science of biblical interpretation the science of biblical in interpretation one of my favorite modules in the school but this is why we have it and that's why we want to make it available to everybody the question is am I a diligent student of scripture who understands the word of God in context so that's the belt of truth the word of God is truth there is no truth necessary for me to know outside of the Word of God in order to live godly and live in this life safely. I think I should throw this in here. But you know that there are all these truths about the Word of God. Like for instance, we believe in the infallibility of Scripture. In other words, Scripture does not fail. If it promised something, it will, it will fulfill what it's promised. It will not return void. It will accomplish what it was sent forth to do. It is infallible. You can stand on it. You can hold on to it. It's inerrant. The inerrancy of Scripture is a big doctrine that we need to still talk through on a Sunday. But the inerrancy of Scripture is that there is no error in it. God Himself sovereignly made sure 
that all that he said to us was placed in a canon of scriptures from beginning to end. And within it, there is no error. People go, oh, well, you know, it's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Well, when somebody says that to you, then you got to know that they don't know what they're talking about. They're just repeating somebody else's statements, right? The Word of God is a divine, living, miraculous communication between God and man. It is inerrant, inerrant. There is no error. But watch this. Not only is the, do we have the doctrine of the infallibility of Scripture, but we also have the inerrancy of Scripture. But here's a big one, the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, this one here people throw out. People throw away the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you realize that the Bible claims that there's nothing more you need than the Bible itself for godly living and for life itself? We don't need anything else. We just, we need the Scripture. But oftentimes what people do is they have to find extra biblical encouragement in order to make it through today. <laughs> They're like... They've got to find extra biblical encouragement in order to get through. Instead of saying, hey, the armor of God is sufficient. It's what it says. Not only is it inerrant or infallible, but it's sufficient. I don't need anything else. I need this, and I will know what to do when the enemy strikes. Does it make sense? So the question I have to ask myself is, am I a diligent student of Scripture? who understands God's word and context. The second is the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? The breastplate of righteousness. Well, what is meant by righteousness is found in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Since you live in 2023, be sober. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate. Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And here we see the breastplate of righteousness as a breastplate of faith and love. So this is how, this is now clear that the Apostle Paul is talking about the righteousness that comes by works of the law. Not by works of the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. Or you might say the faith of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. Why is it so important to be persuaded and convinced that you are the righteousness of God? Why is this so important to have this breastplate of righteousness? Because this breastplate protects the soldier's vital organs. This breastplate protects especially the heart. You will experience certain defeat if you're going to rely on the flesh for spiritual warfare. So the question we have to ask here in assessing whether we are wearing the breastplate of righteousness or not is this. Am I entirely and completely convinced that I am the righteousness of God in Christ? Or do I doubt it? Am I, are you convinced that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? If not, you are not wearing the breastplate of righteousness and your heart has not been protected from doubt. Your heart is not protected. Number three, the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
Now, this is interesting. If you look at a Roman soldier, he had these shoes that were kind of like heavy sandals, laced halfway up the cuff with straps, leather straps. And this enabled the soldier to march long distances with speed and gave him mobility and availability to march into battle. And soldiers used to sleep with their shoes on because they always had to be ready to move. The moment you know, they, hear, they hear like the shout, they, they're up and they're running. And so they slept with their shoes on. And that's why Paul was saying the readiness of the shoes of the gospel of peace. So the first question we have to ask in assessing if you are wearing the shoes of gospel is, are you available? Are you ready? The gospel, are you ready with the gospel? What does that mean? Well, are you ready to, number two, are you ready to articulate the very good news of the gospel? Are you able to articulate the good news of the gospel with scripture? That's the question. Thirdly, the shoes are also called the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now watch this. It's the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. If they didn't have the necessary covering to protect them from being injured, it would have, it would have caused them to be unable to continue in the war, right? So if they didn't have the shoes on and they stepped on sharp objects or whatever it is, they couldn't keep running. So it kept them in a place where they could continue. Like you need to be in a place of peace in order to continue. And here are some of the things that injure people to the point where they can no longer fight the enemy. Uh, like this is, these are the injuries Satan wants you to have. Because if you get injured this way, you stop fighting. If this, here's just three, all right? The first one is offense, injures you to the point where you can no longer fight. It's like a soldier without shoes. He steps on a sharp object, and now, now he's limping, and he can't really fight the way he needs to fight. So is the person who's offended. They can't, they can't fight anymore. They're no longer soldiers fighting the enemy. Why? Because now they're not fighting the enemy. They're fighting the, they're fighting the soldier next to them that offended them. Does it make sense? So now they're turning on the person who offended them instead of the enemy that wants to kill them. The second injury is jealousy. Jealousy. Jealousy injures you to the point where you can no longer be a soldier in a way that you should be. Because if, you, we if you're jealous, Nation then you're no longer you focused on conquering the enemy, meaningful. but rather focused on being Please better feel free to share it with anyone that you think needs to hear it. The third we hope you can join us soon for a Sunday experience. For unforgiveness more information, and bitterness injures you. Why? Because at this point, the fellow soldiers now become your enemy you. instead. I'm so offended. Now I'm fighting the people around me instead of the enemy itself. Who's your enemy? The flesh, the world, and the devil. Not us, not people. Nobody around you is your enemy. Nobody in your family is your enemy. So the third question, and this is a big one. The third question to ask, therefore, is, and this is how you know if you're wearing the, the shoes of the gospel, am I emotionally led 
or am I scripturally led? You know, most people, they cannot be led by the scripture because they're led by their emotions. I'll give you an example. Let me say this. The scripture in general naturally tells you to do the opposite thing that the flesh is telling you to do. For instance, Tom, if you come up here and you slap me, okay, what does my flesh want to do? Slap you back. What does the spirit tells me, tell me to do? Turn the other cheek. When, when it's cold and somebody tells me to, to, to uh, uh, walk a mile outside, what does the flesh want to do? Like, you walk a mile. Tell me to walk a mile. You walk it. No, that's what the flesh wants to do. What does the Spirit tell me to do? Walk two. Go the extra mile. I mean, there's not. What are we supposed to do, those who hate us? Do what? Pray for them. What does the flesh want to do? Hate them back. Yeah, kill them. Hate them back. <laughs> so, so literally, you can go through from the top of the Bible to the end of the Bible. The Spirit always tells you to do not the flesh. Literally the opposite of what the flesh wants to do. So the question is, are you scripturally led or are you emotionally led? Because the offended person wants to take revenge. The person that's, the, the, the person that's been injured through, what was our second example there? The person that's been injured through jealousy wants to live up to everybody else and beyond everybody else. The person who, who lives in bitterness and unforgiveness wants to get back at. But instead, our enemies, we need to love our enemies, not hate them, not get back at them. We need to celebrate our brother who succeeds, not try and be better than him. We need to, we need to forgive people who have offended us, not take revenge on them. So really, to be led by the Spirit is to do the opposite of your enemy, the flesh. See? To be led by the Spirit is not to say, yeah, the Lord wants me to have this pizza, not that one. The, two of them, actually. Two. Yeah. That's what I hear right now, Jesus. I love how one minister always comes. <laughs> he always goes like, yes, Lord. He stands in front of the whole audience. He goes, yes, yes, Father. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, Lord. I will. Uh, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I will tell them. I will tell them. The Lord says, $1,000, each of you, now. <laughs> no, like, like, honestly, to be led by the Spirit is to be led by the Scripture because the Scripture is Spirit-breathed. Amen? And it's, it's usually, I'm saying usually because I haven't thought through every single situation in life, but it's for most part the opposite of what the flesh wants. So am I emotion-led or am I scripturally-led? This is wearing the shoes of the gospel. And you go like, the gospel is Jesus crucified on the cross. Yes, that's the heart of the gospel. But guess what? The gospel is a lot more than just that. That is what happened in order to undo all things sin created. If you think Marxism is sinful, which it is, it's satanic, guess what's going to undo it? The gospel. The gospel is more than just raising your hand saying, I'm going to pray this prayer and be saved. Let's talk about the shield of faith. The shield of faith. What is the shield of faith? We talked about a lot of things now. 
We talked about the belt of truth. We've talked about the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel. Now let's talk about the shield of faith. The ancient Roman shield was a door, looked like a door. It's big. It was bigger than the soldier itself, himself. Big enough to protect the whole person. That's God's shield in your life. Big enough to protect all of you, your whole life. You see, faith is the protective barrier between us and Satan's strategies of war. Satan wants to cripple you. We already know this. And the only way for him to do it is to cripple your faith. If he can, it's almost like taking a fuse out of a fuse box, right? You take the fuse out and suddenly everything goes dark. Well, that's what he does. He goes after your faith. If he can cripple your faith, everything else goes away. Right? So, somebody might ask, well, how does he try to cripple my faith? How does he try to take that fuse out? By causing you to doubt God's words. That's it. If you have faith, the faith you have, let me tell you, is not of your own making. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the one who designed it, who created it. And in fact, the Bible says that it's Christ's faith that he puts in your heart. It's the faith of Christ that is now in you. Now, what Satan wants you to do is he wants you to go contrary to that faith and say, well, did God really say I shouldn't do that? He's such a killjoy. Why is he so, ah, come on, God, lighten up a little bit. Well, he knows, he knows your enemy better than you do, and he knows how that will destroy you. That's why he says no to it. But that's exactly what happened in the garden. Isn't that what was said to Eve? Like, did God really say don't bite that apple? I know it wasn't an apple. It was a fruit. Did God really say you shouldn't bite that banana? She goes, it looks glorious. <laughs> and so she doubted God's word and sinned. And that's what Satan wants to do for, with you. He wants to destroy you by doing what? Getting you to think that the word of God is not inerrant, that the word of God is not sufficient, that the word of God is not infallible. He wants you to think that it's filled with errors, that it cannot, that it will fail in what it's promised, and that it is not enough. It is not enough. You need, you need TEDx to help you think through life. You need those TED Talks. And by, by the way, you can go to 90% of the churches and they'll give you a TED Talk too. You know, that's what you need, a TED Talk. That'll help you. No, 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 the Bible says that it is sufficient. You need nothing else beyond it. So what we have to do is, when Satan lies, we respond with truth. Satan comes to you and accuses you. He says, look at you. You aren't good enough. You fall short. You're weak. You miss the mark. What you need to do is take that shield of faith and respond to those lies. Those are his. That's not the truth regarding you and God, because you've been made righteous. So what you do is you take the shield of faith and you respond to that thought and you say, for by grace I've been saved through faith, not of myself. 
That's why I'm saved, not of myself. So yes, I am not good enough. Yes, I fall short, I am short, I am weak, <laughs> and I miss the mark. I know that this is true, but guess what? For by grace I've been saved through faith, not of myself. And Satan will have to leave. He comes back and he says, yes, but you're a sinner. How can you feel so justified to be in God's presence? You respond by, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Since I've been justified through faith, I have peace with God. Not because I'm confident that I'm not a sinner. I'm confident that I am a sinner. But even so, I am at peace with God because I have faith in Christ. Well, he'll come back and he'll say, well, you have, sin, you have a sin nature. And guess what, Jacques? I know that you desire sin all the time. I know that you desire to sin. See, you, you're already condemned. You're like, Lord, I want you. And then I go like, but I also want to sin. Somebody goes, oh, I'm a big mess. No. You're human. And so he comes and he accuses you. And then you respond, well, I understand this. I have a flesh and my flesh is my enemy. But the Bible does say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul said this in first verse of chapter 8, after he just went and ranted on in chapter 7, about how everything he wants to do, he doesn't do. All the things he knows he should do, he doesn't. He doesn't. All the things he shouldn't do, he keeps doing. And so he keeps on and on. And then he ends with, but there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. So what I'm showing you is that you ought to, like in war, you have to be extremely precise. And so in spiritual warfare, you have to be extremely precise. What do I mean by that? You need to know the verse that you need to use for this accusation that's coming against you. You need to know which verse to use when your mind is spinning like a bicycle wheel and you're dealing with anxiety because there is an attack on your life. You have to be precise like a laser beam, know exactly when to use a verse in which situation. Not out of context, but completely in context. So the question you have to ask yourself in assessing if you're wearing the shield of faith is this. Ready? Do I protect my own heart and mind from doubt by identifying with God's written word? Do I protect my own heart and my own mind from doubt by choosing to identify with what God said instead of with what Satan's accusing me of? Number five. The helmet of salvation. Just like the breastplate of righteousness protects my heart and my vital organs, so the helmet protects what? My mind. The helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation, not the helmet of, of self-esteem. <laughs> you know, like, no, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good, I'm a great person, I'm a great person. Every time I go to Starbucks, it says, you are beautiful. I'm a beautiful person. I'm a beautiful person. <laughs> That's not how that works. It's the helmet of salvation. No, you're lost. No, I'm not. Yes, you're lost. No, I'm not. 
The helmet of salvation speaks specifically of having a renewed mind regarding salvation theology in your life. This is why the doctrines of grace ought to be a part of all of our conversations at all times. So the question we ask ourselves assessing if we're wearing this helmet of salvation is this. Do I know what it means to renew my mind according to the scriptural doctrines of salvation? Do I know what it means to renew my mind according to scriptural doctrines of salvation, the doctrines of grace? Do I know those? Do I understand those? Can I explain those to others? Finally, number six, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5 says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Again, You can think about the person that you dislike the most in the world. Maybe it's somebody sitting in the World Economic Forum. I don't care. Anybody you can think of. Here it says, for we walk in the flesh. uh, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Here we go. For the weapon of our warfare, weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. They have divine power. Divine power. To destroy strongholds. Divine heavenly power to destroy earthly strongholds. Five, it says, we destroy arguments. Now it's telling us what these strongholds are. We're destroying arguments and every lofty opinion. So arguments and opinions, arguments and opinions, arguments and opinions. You might call them policies and ideologies, philosophies. We're we, we destroying those. <clears throat> How? Against the knowledge of God. Those opinions that come against the knowledge of God, we destroy them and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here we are commanded to destroy speculations and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And what is this that we are pulling down? These strongholds is, in fact, the word lagismos. Lagismos. I know I'm mispronouncing it. Lagismos in Greek. But it is the word speculation, which is ideas, theories, viewpoints, philosophies, and any concept that is anti-God or anti-Scripture. We ought to address that. We need to be accurate, as in war. Laser-sharp accuracy. We need to be able to answer these philosophies from a scriptural perspective. So in essence, we are to have enough scriptural knowledge to debate, to reason, and intellectually discuss why certain anti-God ideologies are damning. And I know that this might go over your head, and you might say, well, I don't think it's me. I don't think it's me. Yes, it's you. Maybe you're the one that need to think through how the gospel undoes the lie of abortion or how the gospel will undo the lie of, let's say, Marxism, or how the gospel will undo Satan's lie of feminism. How does the gospel undo all of these damaging, damnable ideologies that's infiltrating our world? (coughs) 
You see, Jesus crippled every single one of Satan's temptations with the scripture. Every single one of Satan's lies was defeated with God's truth. That is what it means to have and to use the sword of the Spirit. You use the sword of the Spirit to undo the lie of Satan. And that lie exists in people's minds. That lie has been told them and it's sold to them as a philosophy, as an opinion, as a theory, as a viewpoint, as an idea, as a speculation. That is what it means to have and to use the sword of the Spirit. Now, here are a few examples, and we're coming in for a close soon here. So I know, I know that you would disagree with the feminist movement. But the question is, can you use Scripture to address the inherent evil in that ideology? Because until we can, who's going to destroy that lie with the truth? Who's going to come up with the truth that will destroy the lie? If it's not you, then who? I know that you would disagree with gender dysphoria. But do you know enough scripture to prove those things to be evil? And that those ideologies or those philosophies that people have are in fact philosophies, ideas that exalt itself against the knowledge of God? Do you have enough scripture to prove that this is in fact an anti-Christ idea and thought? I know that you would disagree with certain secular humanists. You go like, what do they believe? Well, they believe God is dead. They believe God is dead in the sense that they believe He is no longer necessary. They are now the creators of their own world. And I know that you would disagree with a secular humanist. The question is, can you use Scripture to conquer those lying thoughts? Can you pull down those thoughts? Can you destroy those strongholds with God's truth? So we are left with no other option in our postmodern day than to cultivate a conquering theology. You and I, here at Christ Nation, we have to cultivate the conquering theology. There's no other way you're going to deal with what's happening in schools today. There's no other way you're going to deal with what's happening in the world at large. We are left with no other option except to develop, and God's forcing us to go to Scriptures and develop a ready answer for what we see going on. And our ready answer for what we see going on will undo the lies in people's minds. And so... We will see more of heaven come to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And this was God's way of doing it. So I want to close. In one sense, the armor of God is a picture of Jesus. Uh, it's a picture of Jesus. Think about the belt of truth. The Bible says He is the truth, John 14, 6. Think about the breastplate of righteousness. Well, He is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Think about the gospel, the shoes of peace. The shoes of peace. Well, He is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. Think about 
the shield of faith that we're supposed to put on. Well, Christ's faith is what we are to receive and that what we do receive when He gives it to us. Galatians 2.16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's faith is in you. That is the shield of faith. Think about the helmet of salvation. Doesn't the Bible say that He is the hope of our salvation? Think about the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit that you ought to wield in the face of every false and damnable philosophy in today's world. Well, guess what? He is the incarnate Word. He is the Word that became flesh. John 1.14 so in one sense, the armor of God is a picture of Jesus. So what I'm telling you is when you receive Christ, you also receive the armor of God from the belt to the breastplate to the shield to the shoes to the, to the, to the, to the uh, um, sword. You receive all of that when you receive Christ. Paul put it, on, put it, put it this way. He said in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the enemy, <laughs> the flesh. Put on Christ, make no provision for the flesh. The flesh is your enemy, destroying you and removing all purposefulness from your life. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul gave it to us in the form of a Roman soldier's military gear. Christ-likeness becomes the pattern, the model for us to follow. You are never more ready for battle than when you are like Christ. You are never more ready for battle than when you are being sanctified in reflecting Christ. When you reflect Christ, you are the greatest soldier in the spiritual battle that you could possibly be. Put on Christ, and you cannot be conquered in the spiritual battle of life. Did you get something out of the Word? Amen.